Good morning. If you have your Bibles, go with me to Luke chapter 10. I would encourage you once again as we work through this text, it will help you in greatly to follow along in your own Bible. Uh, as we are going to work through both chapters 10 and chapter 11 this morning. Two chapters. We're going to kind of bounce around a little bit. Um, we will read every verse, uh, not that that makes us more holy, but we are going to uh, attempt to, to uh, read and just lightly discuss really uh, uh, this passage, because there is so much in this passage that could be said. Um, but I want to encourage you guys with something. I want to encourage you, and it's kind of a challenge at the same time. As we work through texts, as we journey along, let me encourage you uh, to not be a people that just hear the words and carry on with life. We hear the words reflect on the words, think about how they apply, what are the implications for my life. Um, you know, there's a kind of debates and differing opinions when it comes to preaching, um, that we should be application heavy, we should be exposition heavy, or explaining the text heavy, and, and I don't know what the answer to that is. I think if you preach the text well, you're going to preach application, but... At the same time, it's just absolutely impossible for anybody to preach a text and all of its application for your life. That's where the Holy Spirit and you have to work. To work to understand the text and then work to apply the text. Because, you know, I have no clue what tomorrow holds for anybody here. Like, how this text affects you in your workplace tomorrow, I don't know. And probably will never know. But you and the Holy Spirit know. Uh, and so let me challenge you just to, part of taking care to hear the word and respond in faith is to take those words and go, Holy Spirit, how does this change my life? How does this affect me? Not, and we're not saying how do I want to understand this text although it's important for us to take it as our own responsibility to make sure we understand the text right. But I'm talking primarily about taking the text and going, how does this change my life? And we're going to talk about different aspects of how it should change our life. But uh, I want to encourage you to be doing that. It's, this should be your regular practice. We read the Word of God, we hear the Word of God, we interact with the Word of God, and then how does it change my life? Um, remember, we cannot hear the words of God and sit passively. Something happens. Jesus tells us that we, our hearts are either softened towards God and we move towards sanctification and in, in, in the image of Christ or our hearts become hardened. Let's not let our hearts become hardened, right? It's perseverance. Let's persevere in the faith. So, all right, with that, Luke chapter 10, lest we not get done this morning. Luke chapter 10 and 11. Uh, I have basically, what I think, like seven sections in these two chapters. And I want to kind of give those to you. If you want to write those down, great. We'll kind of fly through them. I think the first of the seven sections is the mission of the 70. So that's chapter 10, 1 through 16. The mission of the 70. 
Then we have the theology of joy. I think we're given a theology of joy in Luke chapter 10, verse 17 through 24. A theology of joy. So part of the reason, real quick, why I'm giving you some of these sections, because I don't think that the breaking up of like subject headings in your Bible are the most helpful. So I think some of these are kind of combined and should be kind of understood very tightly together. Uh, so theology of joy, Luke 10, 17 through 24. Then we have the story of the Good Samaritan. That's section number 3, Luke 10, 25 through 37. And then we have the story of Mary and Martha. That's Luke 10, 38 through 42. And then Jesus on prayer. That's Luke 11, first 13 verses. Last two sections. The controversy over exorcism. And not as in our controversy, but the controversy that Jesus created. Luke 11, 14 through 36. And lastly, the woes to the Pharisees, Luke eleven thirty seven through 54. I give those to you just to go back, look at those in sections, study those. And that's kind of where, kind of my foundation, where we're going to kind of work from. But we've been looking so far in Luke at the early years of Jesus' ministry, right? The early years has been, this is where we've seen Jesus really concentrating on the people around him, understanding primarily via demonstration who he is, not necessarily uh, audible proclamation of who he is. So he's not been going around saying, I am the Son of God, the Messiah of the world, come to save you all, you know, follow me, repent, or go to hell. Like, that's not been his ministry thus far. His ministry has been healing, bringing about new creation, Right? So restoring things both physically and spiritually and emotionally. He's been restoring these things, thereby demonstrating who he is. We've seen him, and what he's demonstrating ultimately is that he is God. That there is no question Jesus' intent by these verses. And that's where, just briefly, we get into this, well, Jesus was a good teacher. Well, if he really meant what he said and he's lying, then he's not a good teacher. Like, we shouldn't listen to anything he says. Like, he's a, he's a lunatic, he's a liar, right? That's not a good teacher. And instead, Jesus, if this is true, it's very clear that he is saying he's God. He's God. But now, we come to the point where the disciples are beginning to see who Jesus is. They're beginning to say, I believe he's God. I see this. And now, Jesus' kind of eyesight, if you will, turns towards the cross. And now, as he begins to move towards, like physically and mentally and spiritually, as he begins to move towards the cross, it's now going to be largely a demonstration of what it looks like as someone who believes in Jesus to follow him. What does this look like? Now, we need to keep in mind as we work through this, because this is so, we are in like, our culture is like, just give me a list of do's and don'ts, and, and then when I get to the end of the day, I can check that off, and that means I'm a Christian, all right? That's not fundamentally the purpose of the text. I think fundamentally, in the text, the point is who Jesus is, that's most fundamental, who Jesus is. 
I'm going to argue that's, the, that's across the board in the text is ultimately who God is. It's a revelation of God. And when we, if we believe that to be true, then how do we live in light of that? If we're made in the image of God, how do we live in light of the revelation of His character? So, fundamentally, this is not a list today of things for us to check off at the end of the day. If we do that, if that's our approach, then we're no different than the Pharisees. We are trying to earn our righteousness, our favor with God, everything that we just sang against. We are trying to do that. So most fundamentally, this text is a revelation of who Jesus is, and then because of who He is, what our right response should be. So, I think, as we work through this text, a second thing I would say is that you get a very good cross-section of Jesus' teaching through these next two chapters. Um, so, just to let the cat out of the bag, four points from t- today's text. So this is where we're headed. Four things. Um, if you want to cheat, you can go ahead and fill out your outline if you want to, but it doesn't mean you can check out the rest of the time. All right? So, first of all, those who follow Jesus believe in Him. Like, they believe in Him. This is most fundamental in the text. Who Jesus is, believing, and then believing in Him. Those, secondly, those who follow Jesus pray. Those who follow Jesus love, and those who follow Jesus rejoice. They believe in Him, they pray, they love, they rejoice. So the first thing we're going to talk about is that those who follow Jesus believe in Him. Because of who He is and our belief in Him, we will live a certain way. Like this is a natural outworking of that belief in Him. But the belief in who He is, I think, comes first. Let's read Luke 10, 1-16. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them out on ahead of Him, two by two, and to every town and place where He Himself was about to go. And He said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into His harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, or greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves its wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town... And they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, Even the dust on your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me. And the one who rejects you, rejects 
me. And the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. All right. First, we see kind of the first big mission being sent out by Christ. We have now 70, depending on translation, some say 72. Uh, there's different opinions on whether it was 70, 72. I think at the end of the day, it doesn't matter uh, whether it was 70 or 72. I don't think the point of the text is that. Although I do th- tend to think that he, it would be 70 because I think because of the symbolism that it's representing. If you think earlier on, or in the chapters before this, Jesus sends out a much smaller group, the 12. What does that remind you of? The 12 tribes, right? Now, it's Jewish tradition that, there, that all the nations of the world come from or came from 70 nations. So I think what's going on here is Jesus is symbolically showing us that his mission was not just for the Jew, but was for the whole world. But of course, who did it come, go through first? It went through the 12 disciples, the 12 nations of tribes of, rather, tribes of Israel. And then now Jesus later is sending them out, I think symbolically, to the world. And if, he, if we understand this, this should affect our understanding of the gospel and how we, and who we, rather, present the gospel to. Um, so we talk about, as a church, that it's a, it comes down to proclaiming the gospel, spreading the kingdom to everybody. Like, to talking about Christ with everybody. But my question is, do we have a hesitancy when it comes to someone from another nation who lives across the road from us? Is there a hesitancy there? There should not be a hesitancy there. Or someone across the road that has a different economic status than we have. Is there a hesitancy there? Because what is Jesus saying here? Like Jesus is saying that he is sending them out like sheep among the wolves. What part of that communicates comfort, success, you know? Like what part of that does? I, I don't see it. Instead, rather, there's danger. And just think about it. We don't have time to dive into all that. But think about the implications of that for your life. Jesus' mission was to go to all the world. Now on this mission, clearly his disciples, he warns them, we'll see success and we'll see defeat. There will be those who believe in Jesus and those who will not believe in Jesus. Many will recognize Jesus for who He is, but many will not. They will not believe in Him. And Jesus is saying, understand that rejection of Jesus concerning who He is is a rejection, ultimately, of God. Now, I mean, again, implication for our lives. When we think of rejection, does it break our hearts for someone to reject Jesus when we understand that it's God that they're rejecting. They're not just rejecting a religious thought. They're not just rejecting a better life. They're not just rejecting Christianity. They're rejecting God, the God who made them in His image and sent His Son to die for them. Do we see that? Do we believe that? Do we believe that in our own lives? Now, even for those who 
believe in Jesus and follow Him, that when we choose the things that are not of God, that we are essentially rejecting God. See, this is carrying out the implications for our lives. Jesus says that ultimately they're rejecting God. Now, a little bit further thought on this. We think of those He is sending. He's telling them to go, and, and you're telling them. And, and, and when we think of our proclaiming God or proclaiming the gospel in Jesus Christ, like whether that's from a platform like this or that's from you across the fence to your neighbor, when they reject you, they're rejecting Christ and rejecting God. So, Jesus sends them out, tells them to go. Some will receive you and some will reject you. And no, it's just going to be dangerous. Do we understand that? Now, let's think about a proper response when we when we think of, like, what does it look like? We're like, who is Jesus? And when we think of, like, what this proper response is, when we think of who is Jesus, so how do I respond to that if I know who He is? I think here now in 1038, we see Martha and Mary. And I think this is where we begin to see a beautiful picture of what this looks like. Read with me. And I understand we are skipping verses here, but we'll come back to those, okay? So we're going to 38. We're skipping 17 through 37, and we'll come back to those. So Mary and Martha, verse 38, Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Right. So Martha is busy doing where Mary is busy sitting at the feet of Jesus. I think we have to ask one of the first questions we have to ask here is what is Jesus saying will not be taken away from her? If I'm understanding the text correctly, I think what he's saying will not be taken away from her is the fact that she sees him for who he is. This will not be taken from her. Like she sees him. She has faith in him, belief in who he is, and this will not be taken away from her. She is sitting and living in light of who he is. This will not be taken from her because she sees him for who he is. It requires her what? I think the picture here is it requires her full attention. It's Jesus, and I can't do anything but give him my full attention. Let's think about that in our lives. Are we busy, 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 doing, 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 or does Jesus require our full attention? Does He require our full attention in our work? Does He require our full attention in our serving? Does He require our full attention? Because here's the thing I want to bring out for us from this text. I don't think that the text is telling us to sit down and listen versus do. 
It's not a, well, you just need to go sit quietly and listen to Jesus and not be busy doing what God has called you to do. Clearly the text, and God has given us tasks to do, and obedience is required. So don't think the, task is, the text is telling us to, well, you need to sit more often and listen to Jesus. I don't think that that's the point here. The point is, is who has your full attention? Because oftentimes when we get busy doing, what happens to Martha here? Or to uh, Martha, yeah. What happens to Martha here? She's distracted. It says this, but Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Who is that, at that point, who's in Martha's focus? Who's getting Martha's full attention? On the outside, it looks like Jesus is because she's serving, right? But on the inside, who's got her full attention? It's her. What is she doing? It's about me. I'm serving. I'm working. I'm doing this. I, think it, I don't think it's a far stretch to take from the... T- it's about me earning what I'm doing. I think in the broader context here, when we see the Pharisees, what's going on, it's about what I'm doing to earn God's favor. And I think that's not a far stretch to say this is what Martha is doing. Martha is earning God's favor by her do, 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 do. And instead, Mary's saying, Jesus has my full attention. So I think the application here we need to ask is, how do I do what God has asked me to do while, and give Jesus my full attention in everything that I do. Again, I don't think the point of the text is to tell you to sit down and chill and do nothing. Although, I'm sure for many of us, it would be valuable to take some time to just sit and listen. I think the broader point here is who has our full attention when we are serving, when we are singing, when we are sacrificing, when we are blessing, whatever it is that we're doing, who has our full attention? Jesus should have our full attention. The question is, are you consumed by Him or consumed with doing things for Him? Are you consumed by Him or consumed with doing things for Him? There's a big, there's a fundamental difference there. You need to be consumed by Him while living in obedience to Him. Consumed by Him while living in obedience to Him. You see, Martha was confused, I think, and misunderstood of who Jesus was. Right? I think she's confused because I think it's about doing, 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 just as the Pharisees were doing, doing, doing. And Mary, it's not about doing, doing, doing. It's about Him having my full attention. About me giving my life to Him, I think is what's being represented here. But there was confusion. So, so Martha, again, I think what's going on in the Jews during this, mind, during this time, Martha is used to the Pharisees saying, you must do, do, do. And Jesus is coming and turning that thing on its head and saying, it's not do, do, do. It's me, me, me. It's Jesus. And Mary recognizes this. Martha's still in the old mindset. She's confused about who Jesus is. Mary believes in who Jesus is. 
Now we keep going on the text. Again, the context, there's more confusion in the text about who Jesus is, therefore affecting the belief in him, just as we have with Mary and Martha here. So we go on in uh, chapter 11 now, verse 14 through 36. He says, Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, He cast out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. While others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, now will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebub. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his, his demons, I'm sorry, when a strong man, fully armed, guides his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. When the unclean spirit was gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and finding none, it says. I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. Let's keep going. As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment and the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Hmm. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Listen to those words, right? He says, No one, no one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a basket but on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light, but when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright, as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. Now, notice the main thing uh, through these texts. 
is again and again, it comes down to or back to the identity of who Jesus is. Keep coming back to this. Who is Christ? Verse 15, Beelzebub. Beelzebub is simply another name for Satan. So Jesus, well, here's what's happening. The picture is what's happening. Jesus is driving out demons, but there's something unique about when Jesus is driving out these demons. So apparently from the text, there's other people driving out demons, but they don't really get the attention that Jesus gets. Now, we don't know why from the text Jesus gets the attention that he does when this happens, but he does. Something is different. Something's different. When Jesus drives them out, the crowd goes, whoa, what is going on? It drew attention to Christ. The people were amazed and started wondering, by what name? By what name are, is he driving them out? And that's when Jesus demonstrated here that he is incredibly concerned that the people get it right when it comes to who he is. His concern here, who is it? It's not Satan. It's me. And it's the finger of God in me. I like when he says, a house divided against itself, like it will not stand. Uh, he says, and a divided household falls. Uh, makes me think of like split households for teams, you know, like like a Michigan fan and like an Ohio State fan in the same house, if that's even possible. I know in Kentucky, you see like Louisville fans and UK fans. And have you seen those flags? You know what I'm saying? Like a house divided. Uh, I'm sorry, just when I think of that, it's what I think of. And, but Jesus is saying like this house with different, like, like if I am Satan casting out demons, like that doesn't make any sense. It will fail. We are working against our self. So Jesus here, though, is displaying, I think, concern for who he is. Then you get to verse 21 and 22. It says, Satan is the strong man in the narrative, but Jesus is the stronger man in the narrative. Jesus is drawing a dividing line, saying that if you're not for me, then you are against me. If you don't believe who I am, then you are against me. Do we understand that? Now if we take and understand sin to be believing something untrue of God at its core, and understand what we're doing then when we live in unrighteousness, even as followers of Christ, we are living against God as we do not believe in who He is ultimately. Let's go on, verse 24 to 26. Verse 24 through 26 is where He says, that, uh, uh, sorry, yeah, 24 to 26. He's talking about good self-righteous transformation. If you go back to 24, it says, When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through the waterless places seeking the rest, and finding none of it, says, I'll return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept. Here's the house. It's swept. It's put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than its self. So what happens here, step back out of the text for a second, what happens here is the person cleans himself up, the house, the, the house is cleaned back up, but in cleaning up the house, Christ, the identity of who he is, a living in light, is not put in its proper 
place, not made as the Lord of the house, if you will, or the Lord of our lives. And so what happens is simply a new Lord enters into it. See, that's why when we understand sin and understanding sin coming back to unbelief or believing something unrightly, if we don't replace that unbelief with truth, then it's simply going to be replaced by something else. So I can't just take this Lord of my life and say, you're no longer going to be Lord of my life, and just go on. Because something else is going to fit that spot. I read a quote on Facebook this past week. Uh, now, I don't mean to bash on this person, uh, but Dave Ramsey put this on Facebook, okay? And he says this quote, You'll never be happy if you chase money and stuff all of your life. But you can find true joy through giving and serving others. Now, Dave Ramsey, good financial planning, I'm, I'm sure I've not looked at any of it. But this post, as it stands, says, basically, if the Lord of my life is money and stuff, if I exchange it for giving and serving, then I will be okay. So if I just take one Lord and exchange it for a different Lord instead of the Lord, then I'm okay. So I think, if I, if I understand Ramsey well, I would hope that he would agree with the statement that you're just trading one Lord for another. The danger here is that thousands and thousands of people read this and now go, well, I can just find my joy in giving and serving other people apart from God. And I think that's dangerous. It's really dangerous. Our joy can only be found in God. And then from that, we live in serving and giving and, and just, you know, and here's the deal. If, if I'm finding my joy in serving and giving, eventually your joy in serving and giving is going to run out. Therefore, your serving and giving is going to run out. But if you love the king first and your joy is in the king first, then you have all of his riches to give and to serve others. And it doesn't run out. And that joy doesn't run out. I can only give away so many things from my own possession bank. But when I have the king's possession bank, I have infinite things to give away. So I'm not saying, for all of you Dave Ramsey fans, I'm not saying the rest of his stuff is crap. I'm just saying this statement is not helpful to the kingdom. We should understand that we can't just simply trade in a different Lord into our life. It must be God. You're, here's what's happening. If we do that, we just go from finding our joy in this to finding our joy in this, and it's not God. We're simply trading one functional Savior for another functional Savior. This is where my joy and satisfaction's in, not in God. So we're just trading from one Savior to the next. So, 27 through 28. Jesus' point is that He came to start a new family. This is where she said, Blessed is the woman, basically, who is your mother. Um, that's what he's saying, uh, or that's what the person comes to him and says. Jesus here, though, is not giving permission to us to be rude to our mamas, okay? Like, that's not Jesus' point. He's not saying you can just go cast her out with everybody else. Instead, Jesus is saying, what is my point here? My point was not to come create a dynasty 
Like, I've not come to set up the Da Vinci Code, right? That's not my point here. Matter of fact, I think Jesus right here is saying, I came to do everything uh, that's against setting up my own physical dynasty. I came to establish a spiritual dynasty. A new kingdom with new heirs, new thrones, people who will rule this world that are not my physical descendants necessarily. So, concerning belief in Jesus, your willingness to accept Jesus for who He is, who He claims to be, is fundamental to your relationship with God. If you believe Jesus to not be God, then it's impossible to have a right relationship with God. Because you're rejecting Jesus. And he says when you reject Jesus for who He is, then you're rejecting God. So we're all made in the image of God to depend on Him and live for Him. But what happens, we decided that we could do a better job of running our lives. That's what happened. That's what happened in the garden. I could do better at this. We're created in the image of God to live for Him, to serve Him, to find our joy in Him, satisfaction in Him. But we say, nah, I'm going to eat from the tree because I can do better for myself. And if you're an unbeliever, if you don't consider yourself someone who is, who is giving your life to Christ, your life will be characterized by you running everything. You may believe Jesus is God, but you practically live as though you are. That you are better at being the one in control. And, and I would encourage you, I think the text would encourage us to repent from that. Stop trusting in yourself. Trust in God. Place your trust in Christ. Belief in Him. And you can have that forgiveness today. You can come to know the God who made you today. Remember, there's no neutrality when it comes to Jesus. We are the for Him or we are against Him. There's not a neutral ground there. If you're a follower of Christ, if you're a believer, your life will be characterized by the struggle between submission to self and submission to God. Submission to self versus submission to God. If you believe that Jesus is God, I'm sorry, you, if you're a believer, then this will be your struggle. You believe that Jesus is God, but you continually fight to live as though you believe you are the one in control. You are the one who deserves to be God. Luke is saying that Jesus is concerned with who you think Jesus is. He's concerned with who we think Jesus is. Because if we think Jesus, we believe Jesus to be God, that requires something of us. It requires us to live like we believe Him to be God. Otherwise, our living says that we don't ultimately believe it. If He's God, then we live submitted to Him. If we don't, believe, if we, if we don't live submitted to Him, then we don't really believe Him to be God. So, we need to reflect on His words and we need to obey them. We, and, and I want to encourage us, we want to appreciate Martha-like service and we want to cultivate Mary-like desire. Careful attention to teaching. Appreciate Martha-like service and cultivate Mary-like desire. So, so, you see, it's good theology that drives good practice. 
they're right now just in the world, and this might be a little bit of a personal, like, uh, it's like this big push right now for, like, theology and doctrine, like, ah, let's put that over there, and it's all about being good Christians, and we put that over here, and, and they're like the antithesis of each other, just baloney, like, this is, Jesus is teaching us theology here. And theology is simply the revelation of God. It's, God. it's the study of God. And if the Word of God is the revelation of God, then it is all theology. And how do we live in light of who He is? And so I just encourage us that as we study this, we're learning who God is. Now, how do we live in light of that? So if you know who Jesus is and you know who you are in Christ, you will not be able to live but in the way a follower lives. I'm still going to have struggles. I'm not talking about we don't have struggles. We're going we're to be imperfect, right? But it's going to continually come back to that battle. Understanding who God is and who we are in God and living that way. We must first, though, believe who Jesus is. We believe Him to be God, the Savior of the world. That's fundamental. We have to get that first. We can't move on to what else does followers of Jesus do if we don't first have that peace. But if we have that peace, the second thing we see in the text is that those who follow Jesus pray. Now, for your sake, point one of four is the longest point uh, today. <laughs> I am halfway through my notes, for the record. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah, my, I'm, yeah, my scroll bar is halfway through, uh, and we're about halfway through the time, so uh, that's all right. So those who follow Jesus pray. Those who follow Jesus pray. Well, Rusty recommended today that we take a siesta, like halfway through, uh, as part of our worship. We're practicing resting in God. So some of you, I was thinking your prayer lives look more like that, uh, at least for me, when I go to close my eyes and pray, I end up falling asleep. Uh, so, uh, you know, that doesn't, that's, that's my siesta and kind of enjoying God at the same time, you know. Uh, a spiritual nap. There we go, right? <laughs> it's a holy nap. <laughs> that's right. Um, <laughs> so, uh, just as a side note, it's completely unrelated to the text, but... Uh, so to help keep myself awake, like, uh, I write, like, I write, and that helps me, like, I just, I mean, it's not that way every time, I don't want you to get the impression, like, Matt goes, thank you, Jesus, you know, like, don't get that impression, okay, I have a little more of an attention span than that, uh, for me, it's more my mind starts wandering rather than I, I, fall, I fall asleep, but nevertheless, all right, so those who follow Jesus, pray. Pray. Now, we're not going to be able to cover the vast theology of prayer this morning, but we can, we can take a look at a few verses here. Let's read Luke 11, 1 through 13. It said, Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, 
For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, Which of you has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, real quick, by the way, I don't think this text is, is, is saying that we have to, like our kids have to sleep with us in the same bed, okay? So if you're like one of those families, like that's cool for you, but this text ain't saying it, okay? It's just a narrative. All right, moving on, which that's just crazy. By the way, I want my four-year-old sleeping, or my three-year-old sleeping bed. That's just nuts. Anyways, all right, personal opinion. Where was I at? Eight. Okay, and I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. And if you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? So, very quickly, um, this passage here, if you notice, is different than the other account of the Lord's Prayer. It's not that they're getting wrong. These are just different occasions when Jesus is giving. If you notice, the context here is not the Sermon on the Mount. So this is a different time of speaking to the disciples, right? So this is not a contradiction in the text. It's a completely different setting. The one was in the Sermon on the Mount. This one is after they were done praying in a certain place. We just know it's not the Sermon on the Mount. So in this prayer, though, he was teaching them to trust in God, to depend on, on Him. That God will provide for them. And I think Jesus is encouraging us to show God that we trust Him by continually asking Him. Continually asking Him. I like what Paul Tripp said. He says this, Don't worry about having what you need. If God has guaranteed your future, then He also guaranteed all the grace you'll need along the way. Everything, if God has guaranteed it then, and He has guaranteed everything between now and then. Everything we need. But He tells us to pray, knowing this, that God is the provider. And then we understand the ultimate end for Christians is to glorify God, or is the glory of God. Hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. I mean, is that our prayer? If you're a follower of Christ, if you're a believer... Your prayers will always be answered if your desire is for God to be glorified. If your desire in that prayer is God to be glorified, He will be glorified. Now, if you're like, with the, your vision of what glory looks like is maybe different than His, it might be answered a little bit differently, but if your desire is for Him to be glorified, that answer will be there. But the question is, who do you desire to glorify in your prayers? Christian, when you're asking God, when you're praying to God, who's, who do you want to be glorified? You or God? 
your friend or God? If you, if you pray and want God to be glorified, that prayer will be answered. If you're not a follower of Christ, God will not hear your prayer in the sense that He has obligated Himself to answer it. God has not obligated Himself to answer it. Now, God may. God may answer your prayer. And, and oftentimes, I think it's as a part of His judgment and just giving you what you want. So, and, and that's, even that is His kindness so that eventually you would see that that which you want above God is ultimately not satisfying, will ultimately leave you hungry, ultimately leave you without joy. So when he says here, you can have it. And I know it's for your glory, like for you to feel good, for you to be comfortable, you can have it knowing that you will find that not satisfying. We just pray for things, for God's will, for His glory. As Christians, we only come to God through Christ as our mediator. We, we understand that He is the one that makes it possible for us to pray to God. So it's not... I just happened to recite a couple facts about Jesus and now I have favor with God. And it's belief in Jesus and who He is and it's His payment on the cross that then provides the way for us to pray to God. It's kind of like the communication line, if you will. Guys, it's not our quiet times and it's not our lack of sin that gets us into the presence of God. Do you guys understand that? It's not your doing that gets you into the presence of God. It's Christ's doing that opens the door into the presence of God. And I just I'll say this, because like, when we hear, I, like I hear sometimes, talking to someone the other day, I just feel like God, like there's just a brick wall above me, and my, my prayers are hitting the ceiling and bouncing right back down. Well, what are you trying to do to earn to enter into God's presence? Like, I know growing up, oftentimes I felt that way when I hadn't had my quiet time in, like, two weeks. And then, like, then I wanted to start talking to God again. And then, like, well, he's not hearing anything, so I guess I need to get prayed up for, like, two or three more weeks. And then I can be good, and Jesus will hear what I have to say. That's all works-based. That's all, like, I stand in God's presence as holy and righteous because of the blood of Jesus, not because of how many quiet times I have had or haven't had. Now, because of who I am in Christ, that should drive me then to want to spend time with God, right? So we're just getting the cart before the horse, and then we get all messed up. But as Christians, as Jesus paid the price for us to enter into the presence of God, start praying like you believe it would be my encouragement. Humble and confident. Humble and confident when we pray. Think of the comparison in the text. If you who are weak, feeble, selfish, give to your children... How much more will the infinitely strong and selfless creator of the universe give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Think about what he is saying there, guys. If you who are evil, and like Jesus is like bluntness, like if you who are stupid, like how much more will God give? I hope that's encouraging. When you think about praying, 
Like when I think about my kids and what, I, what we give to our kids and the kindness I want to show to them, and then I think about Jesus says, you who are evil, if you're willing to do that for your kids, just think how much more the Father will do for his kids. Now that's crucial that we understand who he means by his kids. That's not everyone in the world, okay? But it's his children, those who have the inheritance, those who have been redeemed by Jesus. Those are his children. It doesn't mean he doesn't love the rest of the world, but those are his children. So those who follow Jesus pray. We pray humbly because we know we enter only by the blood of Christ. We pray confidently when we pray according to his will. We pray powerfully because the resurrection ensures the power of the gospel. We pray with joy knowing that our Father loves us. You pray with joy knowing that your Father loves you. Do you? You pray with joy knowing God loves me. He does. He wants to give good things to his kids. We believe that. So, not only do those believe in him, those who follow him believe in him, but then they pray, and then second to last, they love. Those who follow Jesus will love. So in this text, we have kind of two examples. One is Jesus speaking positively, and the second one, Jesus giving a negative example. The first one, positive, the story of the Good Samaritan. Luke 10, starting in verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Hmm. Jesus replied. Now, you don't do that to Jesus, okay? Like, don't do that to Jesus today, tomorrow. Don't, just. Jesus replied, A man is going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest who was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave him to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go. And do likewise. So who's the lawyer? The lawyer would have been an expert in the law. And I don't mean like court of law, okay? Like as in the first five books of the Bible. He would have been an expert in the first five books. And he asked the question, how shall I inherit eternal life? And Jesus answers by quoting two verses. You can look these up later. Deuteronomy 6 uh, 
and Le, uh, Leviticus 19. And then verse 29 says that the lawyer, wanting to justify himself, says, well, who is my neighbor? And Jesus answers with the most unlikely answer. Jesus proceeds with this famous story that we know as the Good Samaritan. Now, if we understand the context here, the route, this route that he would have been on, that they both would have understood, both the lawyer and Jesus, was known for its danger. This was not like Jesus creating like, you know, a weird street in town and saying it's dangerous. Like they would have known this was a dangerous path. And then you have, what's interesting is you have two holy men that seem not to care. A priest and a Levite. So like this lawyer would have known, oh my gosh, like, like he, this is not, oh a priest, you know, he's got his black robe and his little white thing right here. That's not what he's talking about. Like, he knows this is a holy man. Not that priests aren't holy, but this is a holy guy, right? And a Levite. This is a, another holy man. And he walks by, but who is it that stops? The Samaritan. Now, the Samaritan were seen in this day towards the Jews as incredibly hostile towards each other. And I think Jesus' intent is that this person is like a Jew sitting there who the priest and the Levite pass on by, but the one whom has great hostility goes towards him. It was a despised Samaritan that took care of the person hurt. So when he says, to love your neighbor as yourself, and he says, well, well, who is my neighbor? Jesus tells him that the neighbor you are to love might be your enemy. Might be the person you dislike or the person that's hostile towards you. And I think this is fitting because we're going to come back around in just a few minutes in, in closing to talk about what does it mean to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that command... Is, is very fitting with the same command to love your neighbor. There's the same kind of intensity in both sides of that command. So we're going to come back to that. But for now, positively, loving your neighbor. This is what they're loving your neighbor, loving your even your enemy, or someone that is not uh, maybe that desirable for you to love. Does that make sense? We at least know that much for sure. So negatively, so first positively, the lawyer, this is the kind of love you are to show. Negatively, we get to the woes of the Pharisees and the lawyers. 11, chapter 11, verse 37. It says, while Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools! Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you Pharisees! For you tithe mint and rue and every herb, and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. 
Woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves and people walk over them without knowing it. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, Woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with your own fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you entered those who were entering. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him, to catch him in something he might say. Uh, You might ask, wow, like Jesus' tone has like changed radically. Like, it's like night and day, the tone. And, And I don't think the text tells us exactly why, but clearly the mission focus has shifted, Right? Like, the mission has gone from helping the disciples to believe in who He is by demonstration to now, it's all out towards the cross. So just a few, few comments here. Verse 39 and 41 says that they should have cared for the poor. Verse 42, they could have championed giving to the poor and giving to God, but they didn't. They reduced it to just giving the tithe. Verse 43, he attacks them for their pride. Verse 44, their lack of genuine concern for others. Verse 46, he calls them hypocrites. Verse 47 through 51, he calls them murderers of God's messengers. Verse 52, he charges them with hindering others in their seeking to know the truth. So, here's what happens. Where they should have been loving... They were law lovers in the most convenient way. Where they should have been loving, and what they loved more greatly was keeping the law, earning their own righteousness and sanctification. And it happened to be in very convenient ways. They were inconsiderate of others, hard-hearted, unloving toward God and man, and they were murderers. Someone sounded like they were being murdered. They were murderers. They were great examples of what love isn't. You guys got that? So the Samaritan was an example of what love is. The Pharisees were an example of what love isn't. So, let me encourage you here. If you are not a follower of Christ, okay? Like your life has not been given to Him. I want to point out a few verses to you here in the text. Uh, All of us go to Luke chapter 10 verse 28. Luke chapter 10, verse 28, he says this. And he said to him, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. I think Jesus here is speaking about eternal life. Do this and you will live. You will live, have eternal life, do this. What is this? 
What is the this that he is talking about? For that, that's verse 27. And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And my question, if you're not a follower of Christ, is this, have you done this so far? Has your life been loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and your neighbor as yourself? If we're honest, the answer to that is no. Matter of fact, if you're a follower of Christ, your answer to that is no. If we're honest, we will see that we ourselves are simply modern-day Pharisees trying to keep the law in order to gain favor with God. We try to do things so that God will like us. But when we think about this, loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, love your neighbor as yourself, we all fail at that. But instead... Jesus comes, and He fulfills the law perfectly. He loves God with all His heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus does it. He loves His neighbor. Think about this. Jesus goes to the cross for His enemies. So Jesus not just simply takes a bullet for some dude He doesn't like. Instead, Jesus bears the wrath of God, the payment due for the sin of His enemies. The wrath of God due for that enemy, the neighbor, that not, not even just His friendly like, hey, hidey-ho, neighbor, like His neighbor that was like His enemy. And He lays down His life for Him and doesn't just take a bullet he absorbs the wrath of God that's due to his enemy. Imagine the enemy you know hates you, that despises you, that would kill you in a moment if he could. And you know that his life is about to be lost for all of eternity if, this, if there was not a debt paid for what he owes. And you said, I'm going to pay that debt. Christ lives that life and pays that debt. Only that debt is more than you and I can imagine. So we don't have to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, strength in order to earn God's favor. Jesus lives that. And then when we place our faith in Him, then God sees us as righteous in doing that. And then as an outworking of that relationship, then we begin to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves, as an outworking of that. So what about love? What have we learned? Now, when we think about love, there's many objections to showing this kind of love, right? Like, there's more needs than we could ever meet. Does anybody feel that way? Like, when you look around, maybe the people that live around your houses, like, think of foreign mission, whatever, like, there's more needs than we could ever meet. If I ever think about, maybe if I meet that need, it could be hurtful to them. Like, maybe that's not the need that they really need. It could be hurtful. Like, I mean, these are like objections to not meeting needs. But th just because we see 
those things or there's too many does that mean that we don't do anything? Because I think for many of us that's what happens. We go and we go, oh my gosh, there's, there's just nothing I can do. And then out of despair, we sit and do nothing. But why do we reach that point of despair that leads us to do nothing? Like, again, are we giving it out of our resource bank or are we giving it out of God's resource bank? Are we serving to find joy or are we serving because of the joy we have in God? Like, so I understand we have objections, but God's clearly called us to love, to help people in need. John Piper uh, uh, quoted this and don't waste your life. I stole this from Tiffany's Facebook page this past week. It says, uh, it may not be loving to choose comfort or security when something great may be achieved for the cause of Christ and for the good of others. Um, it may not be loving to choose comfort or security when something great may be achieved for the cause of Christ and for the good of others. It is clear we're to love others first and foremost. All right, last point and the quickest point. Followers of Jesus will rejoice, and not at the ending of this sermon. Uh, they will rejoice in Jesus, right? Let's read. Luke 10, 17 through 24. The 72 returned with joy, right? So we're kind of wrapping right back around to the beginning of 10. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, never, think about this, nevertheless, he says, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it. And to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Alright. I don't feel like I'm doing justice to this text, but a couple brief points here. Followers are marked by joy. Followers are marked by joy. Specifically, our joy in God's pleasure in our salvation. So specifically, our joy in God's pleasure in our salvation. It is God's pleasure to reveal Himself to some. Um, now if you struggle with election and say, well, that's just Paul, and Paul's kind of crazy. I think this is Jesus, briefly, on the idea of election. It is clear that God reveals Himself to some and not to others. I mean, there's just no way around it in the text. That's what He's saying. He reveals Himself to some and not to others. It's not for us, though, to declare that to be just or unjust. We're not God. We don't understand God's ways. 
It's, not, it's for us to trust God and that He is good. Uh, see, here, so here's what's happening. We must share the good news, and God must reveal Himself in that sharing. Does that make sense? We must share the good news, but it's God Himself who must reveal Himself in that sharing. The person will not be saved apart from God revealing Himself to them. Maybe the best way to explain this is God revealing the glory of that truth. Like to an individual that leads their heart out of darkness and into light. So it's that, it's that when, when I see, I mean we can tell anybody and everybody that Jesus is God and that he died for your sins. But if God does not reveal that truth, reveal himself to them in that truth. Then they'll go, okay, that's cool, and walk away. But God, pleasure, like it's his joy to reveal himself. To some. I know, it's a hard thing, and, and again, I give it like three minutes of just, you know, of terrible justice here, but uh, the point, though, I think, the main point here is that followers are marked by joy and joy in God's pleasure of saving some. The problem, real quick, I, I say this, it's always kind of a caveat. Whenever I talk about the word election, we typically have a problem with election because we begin with the thinking that we deserve it. And if we begin with the fact that what we deserve is hell, then the fact that God would even save one person would be an act of mighty, mighty mercy and grace. But the fact that he's, he's saving, saving more than one person, right? right? And we don't know who those are, right? We don't know who God has chosen to reveal himself to. We just go. So we share good news. God must reveal himself in that sharing. So we pray and we ask God to reveal himself that he is glorified. So Jesus says, or Jesus says, Luke eleven twenty two: all things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one knows the Son, who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So God saves us because it pleases him, Jesus says. Then the question is this, what pleases you? What brings you joy? What brings you joy? Look at Luke eleven twenty. 20. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you. Like, think about that. But the spirits are subject to you. So they're going and proclaiming the kingdom, right? So good things are happening. Like, like the kingdom is being turned upside down and new creation is being brought about. And Jesus says, don't rejoice in that. Like, so for us, when we think about like this, when we're taking the gospel to our neighbors and, 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 and we're helping the poor and, and whatever it is we're doing for the advancement of the kingdom and, and glorious things happen, Jesus says, don't rejoice in that. Rejoice instead in what? That your names are written in heaven. That you are God's. Rejoice in that. Rejoice that you are his child. Rejoice that he is yours. He's yours. You don't have to do any more. He's yours, right? Jesus paid the price. Rejoice in that. Your name is written in his book, on his hand, on his heart. Believe in that. Rejoice in that. Don't rejoice in all these things, although those are great. 
Those are good things. Jesus is not saying these are not good things. These are good. But where are you finding your joy? Not in giving and serving, not in doing this, but in God, that your name is written there. So fundamentally, those who follow Christ believe in Him. If you do not believe in Him, talk to someone today. Seriously. Phone a friend. <laughs> Just phone the right friend, okay? If you do not believe in Him, talk to someone. If you beginning to believe in him for the first time, do likewise, right? Uh, Christian, you're a follower of Christ, do you live like you believe he is God? Or do you live like you believe he's someone like Gandhi or Buddha? Right? Just another good person. Followers of Jesus, believe in him, followers of Jesus, pray. They trust God for provision. They believe that he wants to take care of his children. When you pray, let me ask you, do you still worry when you pray? If you still worry when you pray, then your praying is primarily for moving God around as you will like a pawn in a chess game. But it's not for that. It's to change you. Give your worry to Him. Followers of Jesus should be known also by their love, love for each other, love for their neighbors. And lastly, followers of Jesus rejoice. Guys, we should be the most joyful people on the earth. Our joy should make everyone else look like they're in misery. Like, we should have that kind of joy. I don't, what I don't mean is that your joy puts them in misery. Uh, you know, I've been around those kind of Christians, you know, like everything's super spiritual, and you're like, whoa, dude, chill out, you know? That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about people who overflow with the love of God. Like they're joyful because their name is not in something that's temporary and something that is fleeting, but their joy is in something that is eternal and everlasting. A joy that doesn't go like this, but a joy that goes increasing for all of eternity. That's the kind of joy that a Christian has. Does your joy do that? I'm saying, do you increasingly look like Jesus? A joy overflowing that leads to obedience. We do that. Well, I want us to sing and reflect on these truths. One song and then we'll be dismissed. I want to pray for us. Uh, I want to encourage you. Great truths from the Word of God. So much here. Two chapters. Lots to reflect on, even in these next few moments. Don't let it get away, okay? Uh, and I hope you took good notes so we can you can study more later and, of course, at house gatherings this week. So I want to pray for us, and, uh, and we'll go. Or I'm sorry, we'll sing, and then we'll be dismissed. Father, thank you for your kindness to us. Thank you for your word and the power of your word. Father, I, um, I just pray that your people will know you for who you are. And Father, that we would understand that faith comes from knowing you, knowing the word of God. And Father, that, uh, that knowing more of you leads to greater faith in knowing you and kind of like a circle. And, and Father, let's pray that hearts this morning have been opened to greater truths of you that live, that lead to lives of greater kingdom impact and influence in the lives of those around them. 
God, I pray that we would take these truths and we would, we would seek out the implications and applications of this truth for all of our lives. And Father, even in this very moment that your Holy Spirit would be taking the Word and applying it to the deepest corners of our hearts. Father, just again, I thank you for your grace. I thank you for your kindness to us. You are so loving and so giving. Father, help us to live in light of that. Help us to rejoice. Help us to love. Help us to pray. Help us to believe. Help us to persevere in believing who Jesus is. Father, I love you. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Would you all stand with us as we sing?